thank you for listening to another Hastings NAS podcast. We are so pleased that you have shown interest in listening to this podcast, and we pray that it is edifying and beneficial for you. You can watch us live every Sunday morning on Facebook, facebook.com slash Hastings NAS. And if you are so inclined, you can support the ministries of the church by going to HastingsNAS.org slash give. Hope you enjoy this sermon. Grace and peace. And as they're making their way downstairs and as our friends are making their way back to their seats, I want to invite you to stand for the gospel reading today. Our gospel reading comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Listen to these words. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, It is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one of the things they had seen. This is the written word of God. Amen. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before I begin this morning, I want to say that it feels really weird to be preaching today. Um, I don't don't know about you, but I've been uh, really, um, maybe to a fault, um, agitated by what's going on in the rest of this world. Um, And now I write my sermons Usually I write my sermons on Thursdays right now. Those are my writing days, Thursdays. And Thursday was the day <clears throat> that Putin invaded and declared uh, war on Ukraine. And this is new, new territory for a lot of us, for most of us. And I, for the next weeks and months, hopefully not, Lord willing, I don't know what to preach or how to preach in these times. Um, in the passage we just read, uh, the, the, uh, the author Luke says Peter did not know what he was saying. Maybe I'm going to be like Peter, not knowing what I'm saying, but I'm okay with that. Luke said Peter did not know what he was saying in light of the present circumstances, and it very well may be that we don't know what to say or how to say or how to say it uh, because of our present circumstances. But I've been working on this sermon for a couple weeks now. It's not always that I have a sermon in mind in advance. Most weeks I write it that week. But this sermon I'd been working on for well over a month now. Uh, I kind of knew where this sermon needed to go and and what God was going to say to us through it a long time ago. I just needed to get it out. I've been working on it for a long time. And so I need to trust that the word that God has for us today from this text is the word that he had been planting months, weeks ago 
more than a month ago. And so I'm trusting that the work God was doing before the world seemed to collapse is the, the work that God needs to do. <clears throat> so, I'm going to preach today. I don't, I don't know what this world is like, but I know that I need to preach. So I want to know what you do with Luke 9, 28 through 36. What do you do with this text? What do you do with these verses? What do you do with the transfiguration of Jesus? It's kind of a juxtaposition from the recent world events, isn't it? What we read in Luke chapter 9 and what we've heard about on the news over the last few days is kind of an, a juxtaposition. We've experienced, we are perceiving the horror of humanity, but on the mountain, those disciples experienced the glory of God. What do you do with this text? The transfiguration of Jesus Christ, what does that mean? Like, seriously, what is a transfiguration? What, what does this mean? I think that when we read this text, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we think that Jesus' face was shining. When we read the story, we think that Jesus' face glowed. That's what we think happens on, uh, with the transfiguration of Jesus. I think we think that. That like Moses, in the passage we read earlier today, Jesus had the reflective glory of God. But I want you to look at the Bible really closely. If you look at the text, that's not what happened. That's not what Luke records. And that's not what Matthew records either. His clothes glowed. His clothing was shining bright as lightning, but not his face. This passage is not called the illumination of Christ. It's the transfiguration. You see, church, this doesn't help me understand it better. I'll give you that. But his figure was transformed. That's what transfiguration means. His figure was transformed to be a little wooden or a little literal with that word. We read today in, in the New Revised, which I read just a few moments ago, we read that the appearance of his face changed. I think that's kind of a benign, kind of a sterile reading of, the, of what's actually happening. You see, the Greek is much more demonstrative. The Greek says the form of his face changed. The form of his face was transformed. Listen to this, church. His face changed form. What do you do with that? What did he look like? What form did his face take? His clothes were glowing. I can kind of do something with that. Sure, okay, God was there and his clothes were reflecting the glory of God, but Jesus' face looked different. What did he look like? I have no clue. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's, maybe that's the point. What do you do with this passage? What do we do? We are modern, enlightened individuals. What do we do with this incredibly mysterious text that does not give us as much information as we would like? I'll tell you what we do with this text. 
We do two things with the story of Jesus's transfiguration. We do two things, which is what we do when there are things we don't understand or that are difficult to comprehend. What we do is we typically, we try to rationalize it, and then we try to moralize it. Those are the two things we do when things are beyond our comprehension. We try to make sense of them rationally, and then we we try to carve out something that we can do. We turn it into a moral lesson or something that we can do because we're very pragmatic, right? I need to do something. If I had a dollar every time somebody said, Pastor, you got to tell me what to do at the end of your message, I'd have like $4. I've heard, and I'll, I'll be honest, I've probably preached at some point that this text, I've preached this text in this moralistic way, this rationalistic way, that, because the very next verse after verse 36, verse 37 of chapter 9 says, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, When they came down from the mountain, what happened when they came down from the mountain in the next very next section? There was someone who was possessed, a child who was possessed, and they could not heal this child from his demon possession. One of the things we do is we give Peter a hard time for his response. He didn't know what he was saying, so what... so what, he, what was he doing saying they should build some shelters and hang out there? I've heard and I've maybe preached that this passage with a rationalistic and moralistic tone by saying something like, and maybe you've heard it this way too, that you can't live on the mountain. What is Peter doing saying, I'm going to build shelters for you? You can't hang out on top of the mountain. You got to come down from the mountain. You got to do the work of God in the world. You, gotta, you can't hang out where the glory of God dwells. You've got to get your hands dirty and go hang out with the demon-possessed boy who needs to be healed. I've preached that, I'm sure, and maybe you've heard that message. And maybe that's true, that you can't hang out in the clouds your whole life. I don't know about you. I'm a guy who lives with his head in the clouds. i got bright ideas, but I, man, I need to come down to earth, which is why I married Kayla. Oh, there's applause for that. Okay. But you, it's, it might be true that you cannot live in the clouds and the need to work to heal this world. That might be true, but I want to tell you that's not what this text is saying. I promise you that that is not what this text is saying. And if you want a little clue in the Gospel of Luke, they didn't have, when they wrote in, in common Greek, they didn't have section headings like your Bible has now. They didn't have paragraph breaks like your Bible has now. They didn't even have punctuation like, your, like our English has now. They didn't have periods at the end of sentences or ideas. They would use phrases to determine when the next thing was taking place. When they wanted to break the story up and, and reveal to the reader that something was happening, they would have a literary mark. And in the Gospel of Luke, that literary mark are, it, it's days. So our passage today in verse 28 said, about eight days later. To the reader, they would say, oh, okay, new story. Something new is happening. And then when you get to verse 37, after this mountaintop experience, when they go down to the level earth, Luke writes, the next day, which is a literary mark to say, hey, break this thing off from the last one. That was a singular story. I'm telling a new story here. 
So the text itself is saying, don't marry the mountaintop experience from the demon-possessed boy. Don't moralize this. And so we're going to avoid preaching this text from that angle. Instead, we want to live on the mountain today and see what the text is telling us about the glory of God in this moment. And to do that, we need to recognize that Moses and Elijah show up and talk to Jesus about his departure. Now, I don't want to blow over how crazy it is that Moses and Elijah show up, because that is crazy. I don't know how you understand this. One of the only ways that I can rationalize this is I go to Star Wars. I mean, this this is Luke at the end of the Return of the Jedi, when he's hanging out there and there's this hologram of Yoda and Anakin, his father, they show up. I don't know how Moses and Elijah show up here, other than the fact that the Jewish tradition said that Moses' grave could not be found, so he ascended into heaven, and that Elijah did not die, but he rode a chariot up into heaven. The tradition said these men did not die. I don't know how they're there. They're there. It's crazy. But they were talking about his departure. His departure. Departure is also kind of a benign word. It's kind of a a sterilized, neutered word for what it is in the Greek. The departure. We know what a departure is, right? Jesus is not on the mountain talking with Moses and Elijah about catching his, his 930 flight from Gerald R. Ford International Airport talking about his departure that's going to take place at this specific time. And he's not asking whether he should pay for an upgrade in order to get an advanced seat on the flight. He's not talking about whether or not he should board first or should he wait till the end because, you know, you don't want to sit on the seats of the plane for like 40 minutes while the rest of the plane is boarding. But then if you don't board early, then, well, you're just stuck with whatever's left. He's not talking about departure. We understand departure but Jesus wasn't departing. No, the word here is not depart. The word here is exodus. Jesus is on a mountain talking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus. That's the word in Greek, exodus, which is not merely coincidental. I think that Luke says they were talking about Exodus on purpose because what did Moses do? Think about the story of Moses. What did he do for the Israelites? He led them on the Exodus out of Egypt. But Elijah also had an Exodus. He had one of his own, and I want you to listen to this. In the book of Exodus, we know the story pretty well. Moses stood up to Pharaoh, right? And God unleashed these remarkable plagues against the Egyptians. It was rather marvelous and unexpected. And I'll be honest, church, I'm trying real hard to not pray for plagues against a certain government on the other side of the globe right now. So Moses had these plagues that were unleashed against Pharaoh And first king, Elijah enters into a competition with the prophets of Baal or Baal. The story is that they were were going to have this competition to see whose God was the biggest God, was the strongest God, and to see which God could light this altar on fire. 
Maybe you remember the story. In a similar display of God's awesome power, not unlike the plagues in Egypt, on Mount Carmel, God rained down fire on a spectacular display on that altar, which was soaking wet. And then immediately following the plagues, Moses and the Israelites fled into the wilderness where they wandered for how long? Forty years. This was the Israelite exodus, and it is how God liberated them from Egypt. When you look at the story of Elijah in 1 Kings in a similar fashion, after the amazing display of God's power on Mount Carmel, Elijah was driven into the wilderness for 40 days. Does it sound like anyone else? Does the story echo a little bit like the Israelites before him? Elijah had an exodus, and, and this exodus was liberating Israel from the, from the false gods of Baal. This was Elijah's exodus, and it was again a liberation for the people. You see, it was in their respective exoduses that both Moses and Elijah had an encounter with the glory of God. We read about Moses earlier, right, from Exodus, the book that's named after the event. Moses, when he received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, as we read earlier, but then Elijah also experienced the glory of God. Again, we read about it in 1 Kings Elijah was, he heard the voice of God in what is called the sound of silence. Do you remember the story? He was on the mountain and, and he, he had a, a fire and the wind and the earthquake and God was not in those spectacular displays, but God showed up in the sound of silence. That mountain was called Mount Horeb in 1 Kings, but it went by another name, Mount Sinai. Moses saw the glory of God on display on Mount Sinai, and Elijah, in his own exodus, saw the glory of God on display on Mount Sinai. And now here we are on a mountain, Jesus on the mountain of God, talking with these two men about how God had liberated through the journey of their exoduses. The text we are discussing today, the text that they were discussing his exodus, which was, take place, which was to take place in Jerusalem, the text today says they were talking about his exodus, which was to take place where? In Jerusalem. Well, church, what happens in Jerusalem? When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, what happens? It is after this story that we read that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. He was going somewhere and he was going to Jerusalem. His exodus was going to take place in Jerusalem. Church, they were talking about his crucifixion. They were talking about his death. And some translations translate exodus as death. Jesus' death on the cross is his exodus from life. Jesus' death on the cross is his exodus. And guess what? It will be the means by which, once again, God liberates. The exodus will be how God liberates. Only this time, God is not only liberating the Israelites from an oppressive political force. Not only this time, God is not liberating his people from an oppressive theological force. 
God is liberating all of humanity and all of creation from all sin and death. Through his exodus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. And church, this is good news. This is good news, especially in our present circumstances, especially in the world in which we live today, because in Jesus's own exodus, in Jesus's own death and resurrection, God has already liberated this world from sin and death. It's already done. Now, does that mean there will be no conflict? Absolutely not. Does that mean there will be no trouble? Absolutely not. Jesus told his disciples when he was going to the cross, in this world you will have troubles. In this world you will face problems. In this world not everything is going to go the way you want it to go just because you believe in me. This does not mean there will be no conflict, and that's obvious today. But that means that the conflict we experience, that means that the trouble we experience, that means the brokenness and the turmoil we experience does not have the final say. This is good news, church. And Peter knew that. We like to give Peter a hard time, don't we? We love to rag Peter. Oh, Peter. Here he goes, putting his foot in his mouth again. Oh, Peter, you don't even know what you're saying, man. We love to give Peter a hard time. Peter gets a bad rap. And now we talk about him because he so frequently opens his mouth and inserts his foot. And it's kind of justified, right? Like, come on, dude, you denied Jesus three times. He does speak out of turn quite a bit. It's, it's okay for us to give him a hard time. But I don't think that today is one of those times. I don't think that on this mountain, this is one of those occasions. I think we need to have a little bit of grace for Peter in Luke chapter 9. And maybe realize that what he's saying isn't necessarily wrong. I want to make the case for Peter today, which is maybe a fool's errand. If we don't know what to do with the written text describing the face of Christ changing its form and his clothes becoming dazzling light, what on earth do you think Peter, James, and John were thinking? If we don't know what to do with a written text, a written story that describes this in very vague detail, I might add, how do you think they felt seeing it? We read about it. They saw it. They experienced it. They lived it. And when we really think about Peter's response, oh, good night, it makes sense. Oh, it makes so much sense when we, when we think about his response, when we dwell on it. We ought not criticize Peter without, without at least hearing what he has to say because He says, first of all, Master, it is good for us to be here. It is good for us. It is ideal. That's a better translation. It is ideal for us to be here. And he's right. He's right. We need to be careful with our interpretations that say you can't live on the mountaintop because Peter, the one who will become the rock of the church, says, it's good to be here. And guess what? He's not rebuked for saying that. He's not rebuked for saying that. Neither Jesus, the Son, nor the Father say to him, no, it's not good for you to be here. They don't say, it's not good for you to be here, man. 
He says, it's good for us to be here. And it was good for Peter, James, and John to be there on that mountain. It was good for these disciples to experience the glory of God. It is always good for disciples to experience the glory of God. We may not ever climb a mountain and see the face of Christ change before our eyes and see his clothes shine as bright as lightning. We might not ever get to sit with Moses and Elijah and hear the voice of God say, this is my son who I love. Listen to him. We might never, might not ever have that moment, but that does not mean we don't experience the glory of God in our time and in our lives. Because I'm telling you, those other nine disciples didn't see that. Those nine other disciples weren't on that mountain. Did they miss out on the glory of God? I promise you it is never never a bad thing to have an encounter with the divine. It is good for us to be here. And it was good for them to be here. And it is good for you to be here. But then what Peter says next, it just makes sense. If you think about it through his worldview, through his perspective, he says, hey, 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 we want to be here. Let's build three shelters. We're going to build three shelters, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. Notice he does not say he wants to build one for himself or James or John. So it's good for us to be here. You guys hang out a bit. We're going to work this out for you. We're going to build some shelters so you guys can hang out here. We'll do it. Don't worry about it. We'll do the work. This makes total sense because Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about what? His exodus. When Moses led the Israelites out into the wilderness, in the Exodus, they dwelt in booths. It's now a Jewish holiday called the Festival of Booths, where they build these, what they call sukkots, and I'm probably not saying that correctly, but while they were in the Exodus, they were these dwellings, these small shacks, and they would put leaves over the roof, and that was their dwelling place. They would build a booth. And then when when Elijah fled Mount Carmel, he was in despair. He said, Lord, let me die. Just like the Israelites said, it'd be better for for us to die in Egypt. Elijah was, was depressed and he sat down under a broom tree. He had his own personal booth in the wilderness. The leaves of the tree were reminiscent of the leaves of the roof of the booths. And so when Peter wakes up, And he sees Jesus with Moses and Elijah talking about the Exodus. He says, oh, hey, hey, yes, it's good for us to be here. Let's get some booze. Because he's processing this experience the only way he knows how. He's processing this experience, this glorious revelation of God through the lens of a good Jewish man. He he, He knows the history of his Jewish people. And he says, oh my goodness, I'm experiencing. I'm here now. It's happening to me. Let's build booths. Because that's what you've done. When the glory of God was on display in the past relating to Exodus, what did they do? They built booths. Peter says, hey, we're going to do the same. We're going to build some booths. Peter is doing the only thing that his Jewish imagination knows to do. And we ought not criticize him for him because he wasn't rebuked for saying that it was good to be there. But as he was speaking, the text says, as he was speaking, a cloud overshadowed them. A cloud overshadowed them. Church, this is the kicker. This is the good part of the story. This is the good news. And this is what I want you to hear today. This is the message. Are you listening Peter, James, and John, they fell asleep on Jesus, don't you? 
Listen up. The voice of the father said, listen to my son. As Peter was saying that he would build a shelter for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, all of a sudden a pillar of cloud shows up and envelops them and overshadows them. And if you know the story of Exodus, how did the Israelites know where God was leading them in the wilderness? By night it was fire, but by day they were led by the presence of God, which was on display in a pillar of cloud. The pillar of cloud was the symbol of God's presence for the Israelites in Exodus. So is it at the transfiguration. The pillar of cloud is the presence of God. Peter says, hey, let's build some shelters here. And God says, Peter, I am your shelter. Peter says, hey, 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 okay, let's do the work. Let's create a space for God to dwell within us. And God says, I am your dwelling place. Do you see how good news this is, church? The disciples didn't have to work their way to dwell in the presence of God. The disciples didn't need to build anything in order to experience the glory of God. That's good news. It was true for those disciples, and it's true for us disciples as well. You want to know the good news today, church? We cannot manufacture the glory of God. We cannot, we cannot create something that is going to make God's glory show up. We cannot build a big enough platform for God to show up. We cannot spend enough money to get the right lights and the right fog machine and the right sound equipment for God to show up. We could put up all the stage lights in the world. We could invest in the best sound equipment. We could spend all our money buying all the musicians. We could practice our music until we're blue in the face, until every note is just perfect, until every harmony is just perfectly in line. I could preach the best sermon you've ever heard in your life, but guess what? That's not the glory of God. All of that work will not make God's presence show up. You can't work your way to God's glory, which means you don't have to work your way to God's glory. Is anybody here today? God will show up when God shows up. You can't force it, church. You can't manipulate it to happen. You can only wait for it. When we find ourselves wanting to build our way to experience the divine, may we be reminded that God does not dwell in our works or the things we build or the experiences we create. God does not dwell in the things we make. God is our dwelling place. When Peter says, hey, I'm going to build something for you to hang out in. I want the glory of God to be right there. God says, I, I am your shelter. I am your booth. I am your dwelling place. Dwell in me. When we find ourselves wanting to build our way to experience the divine, might we be reminded that God's glory does not dwell in our works or the things that we build or the experiences we create. God is 
our dwelling. This is the good news of God for the people of God. Amen.